Hi, this is Greg Poling, director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative here at CSIS, and I'm joined by Bill Hayton, currently a fellow uh, with Chatham House, uh, and also the author of the 2014 book, South China Sea, uh, The Struggle for Power in Asia, which uh, I-, I can safely say is the best general history of the South China Sea that I've ever read. You're, um, you're very kind, Greg. Thank you. I do my best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Bill, you just wrapped up uh, a phenomenal presentation uh, here at CSIS on the historic origins of, of China's claims mm-hmm. in the South China Sea, crux of which is not as old as, as you might as, think. Yeah, as yeah. Beijing would like the world to believe. So, can you run down for us quickly some of the major findings? Well, it comes back to a kind of a look for evidence, and I was looking. I got involved in an online argument, and then someone said, "This can't be true because it says so in this paper." And then I kind of went to that paper, and I thought, "Well, where do they get the information from?" And I chased it back and back and back, and I came to the realization that a lot of this stuff that we talk about now, the sort of you like the conventional history, all came down to some newspaper articles that were written in China in 1933. And so I was trying to un- unpack that and take it back even further, and really. I came to the conclusion that before 1909, there really wasn't any interest among Chinese government or officials in in the South China Sea beyond the problems that came from the South China Sea. So they'd be worried about pirates or smuggling or whatever. Um, And so what happened in 1909, why it's important, was that uh, it comes after a lot of um, political unrest in China. You have uh, the end of the the Boxer Rebellion. Before that, you had the Sino-Japanese War. And you see a kind of a, the, the Qing government's on its last legs, and it, it's looking to kind of show that it's defending the country. And you get a crisis in 1909 when uh, a Japanese entrepreneur is found digging up guano, you know, which is you know, bird doings, if you like, and it is an agricultural fertilizer. Um, and any other time, I think this wouldn't have caused a big issue, but because it comes on the back of this, it causes a big dispute. So 1909 is really when... Chinese officials, take, for the first time, take an interest in the South China Sea islands, uh, as it were. I mean, obviously, before then, you've had fishermen who were using them, and you've had traders who are sailing past them and that sort of thing, but no one's administering them. Uh, and this is the first time that China really says, uh, or at least some part of China says, we're going to stick a flag in this thing, and we're going to call it ours. And I, I think it's important to clarify that point. You're not arguing that Chinese fishermen and others have not made use of the South China Sea. Just like the all of the regional, exactly, yeah, and I mean they, you know, and there was plenty of evidence that you know uh, fishermen, you know, stayed on the islands for short periods, you know, kind of maybe you know sort of you know while their colleagues were, were fishing in, in the region, um, or that people were, were wrecked on the islands and, and and lived there and you know maybe were rescued or you know pe- people kind of collected. Um, uh, you know, um, trepang and other products from from the sea around there, but to sort of say that the that only people from one coast use the sea is just silly. I mean, there were people all around the, the South China Sea who used these um, used these islands, um, and people who throughout history wouldn't have understood terms like China, Vietnam, Philippines, or whatever. They would have been stateless people, migrants, or you know, sea gypsies, as they're sometimes called, um, and. I kind of think this is the sort of the point I want to make that this is a shared sea um, as a you know, condominium, if you like. Um, that that's been its history. It's never been uh, you know one that's only been controlled by one coast or one power. So, if I ask you for a firm date, when was the first 
Chinese uh, declaration of sovereignty over the Paracels and over the Spratlys. Okay, so the, f the first firm date uh, is uh, the 6th of June 1909 for the Paracels. That was the day that uh, uh, a, an admiral from southern China called Li Jun uh, literally did the kind of the, the classic uh, de declaration that sort of imperial powers did. He sailed around the islands, he stuck a Chinese flag on them, and he fired some cannon shots. And he spent three days, he had, about, he had a couple of ships with him, and they were sort of claiming them and, and giving the ships, giving the, the islands new names uh, based on the names of the ships that they had and that kind of stuff. Uh, 1909. Uh, there's no record of any Chinese official, as far as I know, actually standing in the Spratly Islands and doing the same thing until the 12th of December 1946. So all that stuff you may have read about, you know, uh, Cheng He in, you know, the 1400s or whatever, um, you know, kind of sailing past the islands or whatever. Um, as far as we know, there's no records of him actually stopping and claiming them for China. You know, way back when, these were these were dangerous places. These were places you tried to not go and land on because they would have destroyed your ships. So. What I find fascinating is that in this, in the early 20th century, is that you get um, sort of academics and others uh, determined to kind of backdate the Chinese claim and go back and look at old documents. And I've, I've used this word scraping the documents to try and find any line in a document that sort of mentions an island and use this to kind of say, well, this proves that we, China has always known these islands. Always, And, it, you know, A, we don't know whether the document itself is as a, as a proper representation because sometimes they're copies of copies. We don't know what island they're talking about because names have changed. We don't even whether they're ones that are like five miles off the coast or 500 miles away from the coast. So there's so much uncertainty. But what, what you see is a, a conscious, deliberate effort, you know, starting in 1909, again, 1928, and again, uh, you know, a, a famous book published in 1988, exactly this process of taking isolated quotes and using them to kind of assert a claim, which when you actually examine it, doesn't really hold up. Right, and it's, it's I mean, important to note that even in cases in which Chinese citizens may have made some use of the islands, or uh, official documents show that, you know, Chinese maps may have mentioned the islands, that does not a legal claim make. You have to exercise jurisdiction and the Qing Empire never extended yeah, that so, beyond Hainan. Yeah, yeah, so even, for example, 1909, uh, I mean, we have plenty of sources that there was a Chinese expedition there. We have the, you know, the testimony from the people on the expedition. We have English language newspaper accounts. We know it happened as much as we know anything. But then for a decade afterwards, as far as we know, no Chinese official went near the islands. Um, you know, and then you still have the kind of the Europeans in Hong Kong complaining, why has nobody built a lighthouse? Why is nobody kind of, you know, making these places safe from, you know, smugglers and pirates or whatever? Um, it's only in the kind of context of regional politics that um, with when um, so Sun Yat-sen for example in the 1920s does deals with Japanese uh, merchant to basically get money and guns in exchange for the for the for the concessions and then the French start to get involved from the other side of the sea and that kind of prompts a response from China so it's it's only really in response to outside pressures and even as late as 1933 when France uh, annexes six of the Spratly Islands, uh, you don't get a, a protest from the central Chinese government. You get plenty of protests from groups and from a rival government in the, in the south of, of, of China, but the central government decides it doesn't have a claim to the Spratly Islands in 1933. And yet, you know, sort of 13 years later, the end of the Second World War, it's asserting that it's always had a claim to the Spratly. So you kind of get these new memories emerge in, in that intervening period. It's important to separate here the dispute over territorial sovereignty. 
for which we can you know tear through history books all we want and the question of the nine dash line the 11 dash line china's uh, even more recent claims to vast rights in the ocean mm. when did the one start to morph into the other i don't think you see a claim to quotes historic rights the idea that uh this u-shaped line this nine dash line has been drawn and that that represents a historic claim to all the fish and all the oil in that line until 1990s, early 1990s. Um, it just doesn't seem to have been a feature in the discussions about uh, which islands to claim, which took place at the end of the Second World War. That was very much, you know, what are we going to claim in terms of territory? Uh, and that was an internal Chinese government discussion. Um, and that those discussions resulted in the expedition to the Spratleys and then the drawing of the map that was published, uh, well, drawn up in 47, published in 48. The whole question, I mean, I imagine at that time they weren't thinking about oil in the sea. They may have been thinking a little bit about fish, but that really wasn't the main priority. It was much more symbolic about territory. It's really only after, I think, you know, uh, UNCLOS, the Law of the Sea Convention, is agreed in 1982 that uh, I think maybe Chinese thinkers suddenly realized that there was a problem with reconciling that with some idea of kind of, uh, you know, historic rights. And so they kind of, so not. You get the impression that the people are sort of putting out feelers. They're testing arguments in a kind of, would this one fly? Uh, and this historic rights argument, is a, I think it's, it's the real problem because when Chinese supporters of the claim uh, try to put a kind of uh, a legal basis for, for the U-shaped line uh, in English, they usually talk about three things. They talk about a claim to islands. They talk about uh, unclass-based rights around those islands, you know, kind of territorial sea for 12 nautical miles or 200 nautical miles for an exclusive economic zone. And those two parts of the claim are entirely compatible with international law as it's commonly understood. And then they throw in this third vague thing, which is the rights to regulate navigation and, and, and the rights to the resources in the sea. And that really is it's the third part that's the problem. I mean, the idea that they could regulate navigation obviously um, upsets the United States in particular, but, but other countries that believe in freedom of navigation. And the uh, idea of sort of controlling every fish in the sea within the U-shaped line obviously upsets all the regional countries, you know, China, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, and leads China into these confrontations, both with the U.S. Navy about freedom of navigation operations, but with, for example, Indonesia about fishing around the Natuna Islands, which is really damaging China's standing in the region. And you kind of think, is it really worth it? You know, kind of is, you know, is this you know, argument, which I can find goes back no uh, no older than, than, than 1990 about historic rights, really worth, you know, kind of you know, you know, provoking the U.S. Navy and upsetting your regional relations. And, and from my point of view, you know, it isn't. It seems to be a case of people with particular ideas or particular interests in China really dragging China down a particular road, which I don't think serves its wider interests. How much of uh, a corner would you say China has backed itself into here, given that uh, the indisputable nature of, of the claim has become such a big part of patriotic education mm. in China? Is it even possible to compromise if you're a leader in Beijing? I, I think they've, I mean, they've painted themselves into a corner, which, you know, you, in some ways, I mean, you you have that argument that it's sort of it's a way of defending their position, a bit like you know, I don't know, if you know Jessica Chen Weiss's sort of powerful patriots thing that sometimes it's good to have a good angry crowd on the street because it shows you can't back down and it supports a negotiating position. But really, if China is looking for a kind of way out, it's really complicated. The fact that the you know, as far as I know, 
Chinese school children are still taught that the James Shoal, you know, just off the coast of Borneo is the southernmost point of Chinese territory. But when you get there, you find there's nothing to the James Shoal. It's just a bit of shallow sea. You know, how are they going to think themselves out of that um, out of that problem? Um, are they prepared to change the curriculum so that they kind of play down those aspects of it? Well, they're probably going to get a lot of you know flack from doing so. I suppose. Um, I mean, she seems a pretty sort of, you know, powerful leader. You know, does he have the, you know, the, the, the drive to kind of uh, initiate a change in that? But uh, I, I suppose there's, there's considerable risks for him to do so. But, I mean, it does cause problems. I mean, you know, people talk about uh, whether China's going to declare an, an air defense identification zone around the, around the Spratleys or, or draw straight baselines. Well, the problem with the James Shoal is not a feature, it's not a surface feature, so it would be very hard for China to sort of to define it around that. So it would sort of, it would, you know, it looks strange, it's certainly not compatible with UNCLOS. Um, but then to leave it out would also expose them to political criticism. So they, they have this knot, and, you know, it's probably, you know, it's one that they don't want to tackle if they can avoid it. And same with Macclesfield Bank and kind of the entire notion of the Zhongsha, the third archipelago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are no islands in the Macclesfield Bank. Um, and this is this is a product of the fact that, um, you know, when people, when the Chinese were drawing these maps in the 1930s, they were copying British or other international maps and they hadn't been to these places. And so they kind of, they mistranslated some descriptions and declared things to be islands that weren't islands. And it's, they've, they've dug themselves into a, into a real hole about this. Uh, in fairness to to China, you know, Beijing uh, can point out that it's not the only one who's uh, trying to rediscover or reinvent history, however mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. uh, look at it. And you know, y- you cut your teeth in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to conferences in Vietnam with subtitles: "Vietnam's indisputable sovereignty" mm-hmm. regularly. How does the effort in other countries compare to to this Chinese effort to uh, you know, reimagine the mm. history of their claim. Well, I mean, there are clearly parallels, and um, you know, there have been instances in Vietnam where dodgy documents have kind of been circulated, sort of, you know, when they've someone sort of written, you know, Huang Sa or something next to a map, which you know, kind of the, the name didn't appear on on the original or something like that. Um, I mean, I, I think the the problem is when. And, and this is, this is really supposed to be, it's, it's China, Vietnam, and the Philippines that tend to do this, when they assert a claim to the whole group of islands uh, in, in one. So the, you know, the Vietnamese will talk about the, the Paracels, the Hoang Sa, or the Spratlys, the Chuang Sa, um, without, because they don't, I mean, they sort of, you know, because we stuck our flag in one, we claim them all. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be, in my view, too hard to, if you broke down the claim, and actually, the Philippines claims the Calayan Island group, which is pretty much all the Spratlys except for Spratly Island itself. Um, I mean, you could. I mean, I think it's fairly. You know, I, if I if I was a judge, and I'm not a judge, you know, you could say that you know Taiwan Republic of China stuck its flag in Ituaba in 1946 and has been there off and on ever since. Uh, the French, you know, got there before, but the French aren't part of the game now. Um, and you can argue about whether the French claim would have passed to Vietnam. But the Vietnamese could say, well, we were the first in Spratly Island, and the Philippines can say, well, we were the first in Titu Island, the one they call Pegasa. There's the basis there for a compromise, you know. Um, and, I mean, why... I mean, these islands are an awful lot of bother. Um, and if countries could recognise that they're not going to, you know, force the others off without some kind of conflict and trouble, you know, let's live with what what everybody has. I mean, China only has only has seven, you know, 
uh, islands or reefs in the Spratlys. Um, but they're pretty big islands these days, <laughs> um, and you know, no, you know, uh, and I mean, you'll, I imagine you'll say because you're an expert that mischief reef is now a big problem because of the ruling in, in the arbitration course. You know, it shouldn't shouldn't be there. Um, but you know, I don't think the Philippines are going to you know send a flotilla and, and force them out. Uh, you have the basis for a, a compromise on the territorial ground, you know, on the territorial uh, claims there. Uh, if you break it down. Uh, into individual features. Um, so the real question is, can, you know, are governments prepared to see a kind of bigger picture or are they going to, you know, do they fear the backlash? I mean, I would have thought it would be f fairly easy, for example, say the Philippines and Vietnam, to agree to kind of recognize each other's holdings because they, they're both concerned about the, you know, if you like, the, the bigger enemy, in inverted commas, China. But I've mentioned this to Vietnamese and Philippines people, and, and, and you know they, they, they just no, 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 it's not possible at all. If I mean, you've ever can't. mentioned the Sabah dispute to a Filipino, why would yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 you would, I don't think you'd find that surprising. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, these claims. I mean, you know, uh, is it likely? I mean, you and I sitting here in Washington, that you know, that the Philippines is going to get Sabah back? It's highly unlikely, and kind of in, in any conceivable set of circumstances. Yet, when the Philippines draws lines from its claim it still starts the claim line you know from the boundary between Sabah and brunei so yeah these these things linger um i mean we're in, we're in a relatively good situation at the moment i mean in the sense that you know no one's dying um you know there is uh, brinkmanship going on but not conflict um but you know how sustainable is it and how much effort is going in you know giving in mind all the other problems and meanwhile you know the fish are being sucked out of the sea at a ridiculous rate and you know the you know the region faces a you know a food crisis potentially so it's you know it's in everyone's interest to kind of reach a working arrangement and you know kind of get on with the, the really big problems one of the first steps which might be to stop rewriting history yeah yeah i mean an honest you know look at history i mean there's an awful lot of stuff uh, in taiwanese archives um, and you know if taiwan i think you know could play a really important role here in taking the first step uh in making some of this stuff public and available in different languages um and um taking some of the heat out of it and i think you know one of the things you know the, the mainland fears being criticized by nationalists on taiwan if it kind of takes a step back well if taiwan was to take a step uh that might make it easier for people in, in the mainland to um you know also kind of reevaluate the past right. well bill we're gonna post uh the entirety of your presentation uh earlier today on the site uh for folks who really want to dive in and forward along any Comments, criticism, yeah, I mean, accusations, and I should say, I mean, you know, you know, total disclosure. I, I don't speak Chinese. I've been working with translators on this stuff. Um, I haven't had any backing from governments or foundations, you know, for this work. Um, and I'm, there's more. There's a lot more to learn. Um, and you know, given the number of people interested in this subject, you know, kind of, can some of them go and look at the Chinese documents and tell me what they say? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, call for help. <laughs> In this grand Please. project, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you much for having me.